Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And I'd like to welcome you to my interview with Ian Haney Lopez. Hello, Ian, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks very much for having me on. Prose, Poetry, and Purpose is recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon, broadcast at 11 a.m. every Saturday and Sunday on 101.9 FM KVSH, and available online 24-7 at voiceofvashon.org. Thank you all for joining us, and now we're going to dive into the show. Let's see, Ian, could you go ahead and start off by giving our audience um, just a sense of sort of who you are, and in particular, the framework surrounding um, your book? I'm a law professor at UC Berkeley, where I've taught in the area of race and constitutional law for a couple of decades, uh, I think. But more importantly, uh, I'm a Latino uh, who's been trying to understand how race works in the United States, uh, originally in law, but more recently in politics. And so I've recently written a book called Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class. And I'm really enjoying the book. It, As a reader of fiction, I tend to blast through, stay up all night, go to bed at four in the morning. But as a reader of nonfiction, I actually get out a notebook and start taking notes. So I've only gotten a little bit of the way through the book so far, but I've scanned ahead. And I'm really glad you could join me on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time. Absolutely. Let's dive into this. So folks, I'm looking at this really great book. Um, uh, if you live on the island, of course, you're going to be able to swing by um, Fashion Bookshop, and there will be a display copy there you can flip through. Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class. Now, um, you are probably also familiar with Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, I So there is so much going on right now in this sort of arena. How about you give us a sense of how you broke down the book? How did you um, sort of organize it? Well, let's, uh, let me actually connect it up to Michelle's work first, because okay. I, I think that that's an incredible book. Uh, so what Michelle is doing is she's saying, hey, we need to pay attention to what happened in terms of mass incarceration. And we need mm. to always have a carceral system in which Although we only have 5% of the world's population, we have 25% of the world's prisoners. How did we come to do this? Mm -hmm. And what Michelle said is, this is a function of politicians both stoking and responding to anxiety among white voters, of politicians saying to whites, the biggest threat in your life comes from uh, out-of-control minorities who are violent, who are dangerous, who are lawbreakers, who are lazy and refuse to work for a living, who'd rather rip off the system. But don't worry, we're going to crack down on them. Mm-hmm. And we're going to crack down on them violently, and we're going to lock them up proactively. And what you have pretty soon is a, 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 a competition between Republicans and Democrats, especially in the person of Bill Clinton, um, trying to show who's tougher on crime, and the result is a system of, of mass incarceration which has ground many poor black communities into dust. Mm-hmm. That's Michelle's thesis. I think it's, I think it's, it's brilliantly done, uh, and I think that, that um, while she focuses on mass incarceration, that same story can be told more generally about 
the public's orientation towards government. In effect, over the last 50 years, whites have been sold a bill of goods. Uh, they've been sold the myth that the government programs that, that built the middle class are actually giveaways to undeserving minorities and that whites should should resent, should fear minorities, but they really ought to resent and hate government because it's government that ostensibly refuses to control them. It's government that forces integration with them. And if whites are, are to fear government, they're to trust the marketplace, the billionaire class. And, and this, is the, this is a recipe for understanding how so many whites have been conscripted into supporting the policy preferences of the very rich. If you, if you want to understand what's happened in the United States since, let's say, roughly 1970, if you want to understand surging wealth inequality, what's happened to good jobs, what's happened to pensions, why, why so many whites are pretty clear that their children are going to be worse off than they, you have to come back and analyze how our politics have been built around white anxiety and racial fear. Brilliant. Now, that was a lot. So we're going to sort of break that down, I think, a bit and go back so people can really track it. You first started off by talking about the stoking and the responding to um, basically white fear of minority out-of-control groups, right? Okay. So when I think of stoking, what I think about is when I was, I'm 44, it's 2016, I graduated high school in 1990, so I think back to my late teens and early 20s when there was that show, um, Cops, everyone, you know, and there's like this musical beat that goes with it, and it was this massively popular show that was all over television, and everyone's watching it, and what is it? It's a whole bunch of cops running around, mostly taking down minority criminals in all sorts of horrible scenarios and situations. So would you agree that that's an example of stoking? Absolutely. So I think that the media has been highly complicit in this, in its portrayal of uh, who criminals are. You know, I mean, there's cops in the 90s. There's the whole CSI franchise over the last decade. Um, Who are the criminals? Um, uh, they, they They are... low competence, um, scary people of color, or maybe they're high competence and clever, but in which case they're white. Um, who are the police? Uh, they're they're hard nosed. They're decent. They break the law, but but in the in the higher interest of actually enforcing the law by protecting society against these criminal elements. This is a very powerful narrative, it's an, mm-hmm. and it's a narrative that says, hey, whites are, are, are basically decent and law-abiding, though if every so often they need to engage in rule-breaking and vigilantism, it can be excused because really it's necessary to protect the decent people of the world from people of color who are... Um, um, don't belong, they're not one of us, they're not fully human, we never really learn their backstories, who they are, what they're doing. Um, All we know about them is they're dangerous and they're increasingly among us and none of us is safe. That's a narrative that, that, that has been a recipe for success for media I think even more devastating. But, but I'm going to jump in real quick. I think you nailed it when you said that 
that specific excuse is reserved in our culture for the the white vigilante, the white vigilante, because right now there are people in North Dakota at Standing Rock who are absolutely trying to, and all that, the rest of the stuff you said about, you know, make things better for the world, protect us, all the reasons a vigilante might have for going slightly outside of the law, but the people who are protecting the water happen to be mostly not white. And well, I think I think if you if you compare what happened in Oregon with the wildlife oh, refuge versus yeah, what's yeah, happening yeah. in Standon Rock, right? So 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 in Oregon, you know, with yeah. with the the Bundys and with the Bundy family, the this is this is a family that's illegally grazing their land on uh, uh, their their cattle on federal land. Mm-hmm. Um, that when the government tries to enforce its laws, they meet government with uh, armed with automatic rifles with an implicit. Um, threat of violence. They then they 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 take over this federal reserve with mm-hmm. guns, and 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 all of these things are crimes. Except that they are effectively uh, acquitted. Well, they are acquitted by a jury. It's a form of jury nullification where where the, the the facts of the crime are clearly met, and yet the jury says we believe these people fundamentally to be innocent. Well, they also uh, or at were least we believe they should not be prosecuted. Well, that's one thing, but during the process, of course, they were coddled. I believe, I could I be wrong, right too. but I believe they were literally allowed to send people out in cars to go to grocery stores and restock groceries and go back to the, um, the location they had taken over illegally. I think they actually let those people do that, like for weeks. Absolutely. So it was a very... It was, it was months of a very hands-off process mm-hmm. that, that, that essentially recognized the lives of the protesters as um, valuable, to be protected, mm-hmm. uh, the government to proceed very gingerly. And, mm-hmm. and now I want to I, I uh, endorse that. Mm-hmm. I think when, you know, listen, political protest is an important tradition in the United States. It is very important that uh, people have space in which to disrupt society, in which mm-hmm. to say, hey, society, step out of your comfort zone, recognize that something important is going on here. I think in, in the face of those protests, government must respond very carefully, mm-hmm. very gently. Must, you know, At the same time, though, Civil disobedience carries with it, as part of its moral force, the idea that people are are putting themselves forward, are breaking society's rules, and are prepared to accept the consequences. So deep is their commitment to the issues they believe in. Right. And and that's really so. There's a couple of deviations here. We're protective of whites as protesters. We're far less protective when non-whites protest. And then at the mm-hmm. same time. We impose the severest sorts of penalties on people of color, uh, and, and, and not just lawful penalties. Uh, you know, if you think back to the way in which protesters are treated through FBI, COINTELPRO, police abuse, police violence, a lot of that is extra legal violence uh, by the state that's being imposed on protesters of color. Whereas mm-hmm. with white protesters, all, all too often they escape even the, the, the applicable legal sanctions. Now, obviously, during Occupy, 
we saw something different because it was largely um, a white movement. The Occupy movement was largely white in many areas, but in this case, it came down to a classism divide. It was sort of the poor going up against the wealthy, and when they finally decided they were done letting them have media time and have their little party or whatever, they went in and wiped out the camps and were quite you know, violent in the process of doing that. How do you feel? I sometimes, I deeply, deeply value recognition of um, racism. And yet I also feel like, um, how's the word for it? Foundational to racism and sexism um, and other forms of ism is ultimately classism. So, um, I, I think I agree, but I want to be careful about the wording and the implication. Mm-hmm. So, so if we say foundational, the imagery is that um, at root there is classism or class hierarchy, and then above that and in some sense superficial to that are racism and sexism. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that misunderstands uh, the relationship between these, these uh, unjust hierarchies. How do you see if it? You come well, if you come back and you think about um, colonialism in North America, it's it's bringing uh, colonists from Europe. They they are encountering new people in the Americas. Mm-hmm. Uh, they covet their land, especially their cleared fields. This is not sort of you know the the myth of the nomads, but the, these are uh, these are them. They're encountering Indian tribes, Indian. Um, uh, um, um, uh, communities, uh, um, agrarian communities, they covet their lands. How do they take them? And how do they justify mm-hmm. that level of violence? And how do they explain to themselves the tremendous wealth inequality among the European settlers themselves? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what you have in this genesis of colonialism is also simultaneously and inseparably a genesis of race. Mm-hmm. This rhetoric, this ideology that says, some people aren't human, and because some people aren't human, those who are these this, this newly constituted white group, you're authorized to go out and exploit them, to, to brutalize them, to dispossess them, to kill them, to enslave them. Well, the um, like the Catholic the Church time, gave that as a mandate, basically, right? And the Church of England, I, I mean... I, well, I think it, yeah, the Catholic Church, I think if we talk about Latin America, it's slightly different because of the way it was couched more in religion than in race. But in the United States, and what would become the United States, is really couched in the creation of a, of, of a racial ideology. And, and this racial ideology not only functioned to justify exploitation, but it also functioned to disperse uh, resentment uh, about the way in which power and wealth in, in the, the, the colonies were, was constantly being pulled inward and pushed upward. Uh, many of these new whites were themselves quite poor and quite oh, yeah. powerless in relationship to the, the, the people with, with the actual wealth and power in society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And, so, and, 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 and now we have to bring gender into this because the, the patriarch becomes another form of exercising power of exploiting labor, this time the unpaid expected labor of women to run the house as well as to do labor in industry and in the field. And to automatically um, give and, the paycheck to the husband. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And and then race itself becomes constituted, because race is so much tied to descent, 
race is constituted through gender. Uh, the, 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 the way in which sexual access to all women is essentially reserved to white men, but sexual access by non-white men to white women is seen as uh, you know, a threat to the very existence of whiteness, a, a, almost a sort of an, a, a threat to civilization. At the same time, mm-hmm. women of color have no protection over their bodies, not from white men nor from men of color, uh, be, because they're viewed as degraded and debased and also as sexual libertines uh, who don't value their chastity. So we talk about race so often without specifying gender, but really to make sense of race relations, you need to talk about white men and white women, black men and black women, mm-hmm. uh, the Latina, the Asian woman, the Latino man, Race and gender are always combined. They're combined sort of at their root as systems of hierarchy, but as systems of hierarchy that connect up familial relations to group status. Well, it would make sense since they are both um, race and gender are um, a part of those things that you're born with and have no control over, which is always sort of the worst thing to be judged by. Um, I'd put it slightly differently. We're born with all sorts of things that we don't have control over. Only a few of those are made socially salient. Mm. And so, and so the, the, the issue with race and gender is the way in which things that we supposedly have no control over have been made socially salient as indicia of our status, of whether we're superior or inferior, whether we're entitled to respect or instead... Uh, should be feared and can be dismissed, brutalized, and marginalized. Right. right I find... Rather than rather than focus on the biology, we must focus on the social practices. It is very interesting that when they came out with cops, it was of course going after one specific demographic in general: um, brown, black, and poor. Um, and then I always thought I would really love, love, love a show that was. Um, about chasing down all of the, quote, white-collar criminals. You know, I mean, it's sort of, but that, of course, doesn't Absolutely. happen. So it always, you know, goes one direction and not the other. And that, in and of itself, is what raises the red flag of racism. You know, it's like, okay, there's a reason it's going one direction and not the other. What is that reason? I, racism and classism and the right. way they combine. And, and, and I yeah. think it's, it's important to keep bringing them both in so that we see people were sold a story that said the biggest threat in your life is other poor working people. Don't worry about the very rich. And, right. and, it, and, and it's, it's that combination yeah. that, that has said to so many people in our society, hey, we need to circle the wagons against Mexicans, against Muslims, against African-Americans, let's hand power over to a billionaire. Well, and even the implication of circle the wagons is to assume that the wagons are naturally occupied by white European people. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it you is. Don't it's, start... a, it's a frontier metaphor for sure. Okay, so one of the things that I find interesting, I've got my book, there, there's one area that has this giant crease, you know, like I, I, I broke the um, spine of the book on this one because I wanted to make sure I could see it really clearly and it would lay flat. So chapter eight, what's the matter with white voters? Common sense racism. Um, now, granted, we're actually having this interview a couple of days after the presidential election of 2016. I just want you to know right now it is Thursday after 
the day that Donald Trump was elected president. That colors a little bit of what we're talking about, maybe how we're thinking about things. Um, But one of the things that came to mind for me, and I would like to ask you this question. So chapter eight is focused on, you know, quote, what's the matter with white voters? I'm going to let you define how you mean that because obviously there's a whole giant chapter here behind that title. But one of the things that comes to mind for me, especially given Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, and much of what it talks about, and you yourself brought up Bill Clinton, is I would sort of wonder if there would be the same question of what's the matter with black voters who were supportive of the corporate Dems, um, even though it can be shown that in many ways their communities have been um, damaged by that party. So to me, I'm I'm wondering uh, if you just sort of want to grapple in general and, of course, bringing in a way, bringing it back to the dog whistle politics, which is the idea of coded racial appeals. And so I think the middle class is obviously being destroyed and there's more and more schisms, more and more people being told to divide, 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 more, 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 like where we have a thousand pieces of the pie right now. And um, what is going on with, I would never vote based upon my race, but I'm in an interracial marriage and I've got a really interesting background and I've got like pretty high awareness on this. What is going on with people who are perhaps being targeted based upon their race and then falling victim to um, the messages of those who are targeting them? I think we need to be really careful not to, not to create a symmetry between what's happening with white voters and what's happening with black voters. Um, and I think it, it it really goes to what we mean uh, when uh, we say that people are voting on the basis of their race. Um, I, I think that when we say whites are voting on the basis of their race, what we're worried about is that in some ways, in very important ways, whites are being urged to embrace a destructive identity, to, to embrace... Um, I just not a destructive identity, but to, to, to embrace an immoral uh, racial ideology, the ideology of white supremacy, mm-hmm. and to believe that there really is something special about people with white skin and um, that, that whites have a superior culture and that they alone built this culture, this country, and that, and that whites alone deserve uh, to run this country, uh, to occupy this country um, now and, and into the future. Uh, that's a really ugly message. It's an immoral mm-hmm. message. Uh, f- frankly, it's a self-defeating message because right. the people peddling this, this myth um, are using the support of whites to really hand the country over to the billionaire class and the mm-hmm. corporations. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what's happening when we, when we talk about whites. They are voting all too often on the basis of an allegiance to a false, self-defeating, and immoral understanding of what it means to be white. And And yet... It sure is easy to get that message across to people who are in extreme despair and distress. Well, let's 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 come back to that in a second. Yeah, but I just want to finish this. If sure. you think about black voters, black voters are thinking about their race quite consciously and quite purposefully, and very often saying to themselves, 
we live in a society that has been structured to degrade us and to exclude us. We exist in a political system in which one political party, the Republicans, have basically built their identity around a sense of white aggrievement. That party in particular um, not only does little for us, but, but repeatedly attacks us. The Democratic Party is sometimes guilty of that, but at the end of the day, the Democratic Party has done more for the black community uh, and more to fight racism, more to tamp down racism, more to support civil rights than the Republican Party. Politics is always a combination of principle and pragmatism. If we've got two choices, who do we pick? And I would say of the African-American community, they are voting on the basis of race, on the basis of a sort of a hard-eyed look at how they're viewed and how they're treated. And that's to be applauded. I, I actually think it makes sense. Look, I don't believe that we should be colorblind and that we should avert our eyes from race. I think every single one of us, white and non-white alike, needs to think hard about how we're positioned racially in this society and how it dovetails with our ethical commitments and with uh, the real practical uh, implications for our families, for our children. Well, and I sort of context, couldn't agree. I, I agree completely, but and but wrong word. I agree completely. And the point I was making about black voters was not that they were choosing between Republican and Democratic Party options and all the history that those two parties offer, because during the Democratic primary, it was just Democrat and Democrat. And black voters voted overwhelmingly for the party um, option that was married, you know, to the guy who is being, you know, was a big part of what was going but, wrong, but, but think, and but, but they were not what, willing to vote for the person. Bernie was saying, though. They were not right? willing. So, so Bernie was oh, not I, addressing race. Bernie Sanders, I, I loved his message. I love his basic message. We are the 99%. I love it. But think about what his message is on race. His implicit message on race is, Put that on the back burner. We'll deal with economic inequality. People of color are disproportionately poor. Dealing with economic inequality will eventually take care of racism. That's a message that communities of color have been hearing from liberal, liberal whites forever. And those liberal whites traditionally do nothing for communities of color. So if, 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 if a lot of communities of color did, a lot of people of color did not rally around Bernie, Mm -hmm. It's not that we're not sympathetic to the 99% the meme or to the idea of economic inequality. It's that Bernie and a lot of his supporters simply didn't take race seriously. Okay, they so really thought that class was, to come back to an earlier part of our conversation, uh -huh. foundational, and that race was in some sense superficial, and that, and that class somehow universalized all of us, encompassed all of us, whereas race was divisive. And and they're at the level of political strategy, they were wrong. And at the level of analysis, they were wrong. You so, cannot Ian, create a 99% in the United States without talking directly to class and race and to how those two interact. Right. So, Ian, I want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. Um, you're suggesting that um, Bernie Sanders' platform did not address race issues 
at all and that it was focused no, on class issues? Uh, it, it, no, he certainly had a few positions that did, uh, uh, but he didn't, he, didn't have, he didn't offer a sustained engagement with racism. Those were, he, he had some positions on race. They were in his platform. But by and large, I mean, you really think about sort of Bernie Sanders' stump speech. What was he saying? He's saying the greatest issue that confronts all of us is economic inequality. Let me ask I you a quick that, question. But, it, but it's a sort of a truncated analysis I'm gonna that have, says, go I, ahead. I'm going to have to ask you a question. Have you been to a Bernie Sanders rally? I have watched them on YouTube. So you've watched the entire hour and a half long video of an entire rally? From start to his entire uh, speech, uh, no, okay, not 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 one all the time. I've watched various snippets. Okay, okay, that that's obvious. I um, went to my first rally by myself. I went to my second rally with my 15 year old, and I went to my third rally with my 18 year old. I've been to three rallies, and I have been tracking him throughout the entire year. And every he is the most consistent person who has talked at every single speech significantly, specifically about race. Every single speech, there's a huge piece about race, huge piece about everything on his platform gets equal time. It may come across to someone who hasn't actually gone to any of his rallies and listened to the whole thing, this idea that all he's talking about is this one idea of class or 99% or whatever, but that is absolutely inaccurate. And I think that what's fascinating here is that if that's the impression coming across, which is inaccurate, doesn't match up with his website, doesn't match up with his movement, doesn't match up with well, what he's can, saying, can I, can I just interrupt? then the question so, is, so, why so you, were you know, black... Just, no, no, wait, wait, I don't wait, interrupt. Let's just, let's just... I want to ask the question, why are black voters voting for one candidate who doesn't have a very stellar history at all on issues that relate to them directly? Because I'm feeling like maybe what we have is people being broken into wedges and then being um, dog whistle politics, I think it goes in all directions. And if we can address it in all directions, we can improve our understanding and recognize it when it's being used against us. So what I worry about is the, the implicit fault finding in your question. So, and I just want to draw that out because I think that we're going we're gonna to hear some of that uh, in 2016, too, the, uh, about with Hillary, this sense of, you know, hey, you know, uh, this somehow is the fault of the African-American community. Where were people of color in supporting Bernie? Why didn't they come out in sufficient numbers uh, for, for, for Hillary? And, and I think that if there's that implication, we need to we need to puncture it immediately. Because the fundamental dynamic that we're dealing with here is a Democratic and Republican party that have been captured by corporate interests mm -hmm. and a white electorate that overwhelmingly supports those parties out of a false sort of idea mm -hmm. that those parties represent the interests of whites. Now, to come back to, to, to Bernie. Well, wait, wait, wait. wait. You I, said didn't, a, I didn't. A, wait, wait, you said a false idea that those parties support whites. I, I would have thought that there's a ton of people who view themselves as Democrats and support the Democratic Party because they believe it, in their mind, they believe that it supports um, minorities. I think that that's right, too. I think that for some that that's right. But I think that w w what I want to get at is yeah. what is, the, what is the, the fundamental 
dynamic in American politics today. 70% of voters are white. Mm. And I and I'm a, a resist a tendency that says to understand what happened in 2016, let's focus on what happened with people of color. I, I really do think we need an integrated analysis. That is an analysis of how race is working with other factors, including economics. Oh, well, I, I could, think this brings yeah. us back to, to, to Bernie Sanders. So no, I didn't attend his rallies, but yes, I read his website. Yes, I spoke directly to the leading people that he had in his campaign on mm-hmm. race. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, I watched him in his remarks about uh, mass incarceration, fantastic, about mass deportation, fantastic. But notice the way that in that analysis, race is a problem for communities of color. So, so, so Bernie Sanders, and, and, and this is the way 99% of us talk about race. For Bernie Sanders, race is a problem that really devastates communities of color, either through mass incarceration or through uh, extremely high levels of, of joblessness or through um, the coercion of, of deportation. But what Bernie never understood and he never addressed was the way in which race is a problem for the white community. And, and this was the turn, this is the turn that, that I'm urging for all of us mm-hmm. to understand that we have constructed our sense of self, our relationship to government, our sense of others, uh, we meaning white and non-white alike, through racial narratives. And that until we really grapple with race and have something concrete to say about how race is structuring government for all of us, You'll have to be forgiven if it turns out people who are only talking about race as a problem for minorities neither connect with people of color nor successfully connect with broad swaths of the white electorate. Well, that makes a lot of sense because I, it's like, you know, if you're, if you're the white person, you're talking about something that you don't personally understand because you haven't actually lived it. And then you want to talk about it as a, oh, sob story, poor you, poor you. And you're like looking at, you know, these groups as if they are what is what is a race category. They're not turning around looking in the mirror and saying, I also happen to be a race category, you know, and that it brings up that idea of reverse racism, which I've always been like reverse racism. I understand how people mean that when they say it, but I've always felt like there's racism and there's racism and reverse racism is, is a twisted, strange take on something that really should just be like called racism. I'm concerned that if you pull away from the concept of racism in general, that you end up with people feeling like they have, I don't know. So I think race is an incredibly complicated topic. I'm so glad to yeah. have you on the show. I have to take a quick station identification break. We're going to dive back into this fabulous interview. So if you're just joining us, this is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. Today I am, as you can tell, having a very good time talking with Ian Haney Lopez. Um, before we return to the interview, I do need to give a shout-out to some of those in the community who make our radio station possible. Minglement, thank you for supporting our programming. Since 1972, Vashon Island's original natural marketplace, where owners, staff, and customers alike embrace the importance of natural, organic, and non-GMO food and products, 
carrying a full selection of organic groceries, produce, prepared foods, supplements, tinctures, gifts, bulk, teas, spices, and herbs. Conveniently located at Center, where the town of Vashon originated. And we have also gotten a lot of support from Vashon Market IGA. Support for this program comes from them and the Vashon Plaza, one block west of the main highway, where you can find everything from fresh produce to kids' specials, legendary meats, wine, spirits, and movies. Open daily from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. And that, we, yeah, there you go. The support on this island for this radio station is brilliant, and it is all appreciated. So, let's see. My name's March. This is Pros, Poetry, and Purpose. I'm talking with Ian Haney Lopez. And once again, it's one of those examples where I feel like we should have three interviews to cover this topic. Uh, Dog whistle politics, how coded racial appeals have reinvented racism and wrecked the middle class. There is way too much to cover in this one single interview. But we have been having a great time discussing initially Chapter 8, uh, what's the matter with white voters, common sense racism, and that led into some conversations about Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, and other things. Um, we could, unfortunately, actually keep going down this specific chapter direction, and I feel like I want to give a bit of a breadth to the audience, to everyone who's listening. Do you mind if we touch on a couple other chapters? Not at all. Okay, now you had something you wanted to read specifically that was um, like maybe, I don't know, is it near the beginning of the book? Yes, yeah, near the beginning. It's the introduction, mm-hmm. and it really goes back to what we were just talking about. So often we think about race as a problem. You know, it's a minor problem that besets minorities. And I, I really do think, especially in the wake of Donald Trump's stunning election, it's high time that we have a different understanding of race, that race is a divide-and-conquer weapon mm-hmm. that has been used against all of us, and that we as a society, we, really the 99% people of every color, lose when racism wins. And, and so this is, this is the, the insight that, I was really, that I'm really trying to drive home with this book, talking about how race works in our political system. Before you dive into that reading, I want to thank you for how you just worded that because that it did do such a good job of really driving home, as you say, that point that the people in this country who have a large amount of power, which happens to be in some cases the majority white, they actually are targeted or are very valuable targets for, quote, dog whistle politics or the racial racism appeals, racism, because if you can actually use it against us as a demographic, then you can manipulate us to do what you want us to do. It is so beautiful to see white Americans viewed as victims of racism because it's never talked about that way. I think that's right. I mean, I think that we we need to talk about whites as as both victims and victimizers. I, I, it's, it's, a, it's a morally complex uh, uh, picture, mm-hmm. but it is incredibly important to, 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 to whites to begin to see that they are victims of their own racism, that, that what happens to their children, to the, the, the society their children will uh, inherit, is being substantially degraded because of white anxiety and white fear, that that what you have is a society now, uh, basically um, three out of five whites just voted 
to hand over the most powerful position in the world to a man who ran his campaign on the basis of uh, racist fears, on the basis of uh, patriarchy and the degradation of women uh, as an Islamophobe and a religious bigot, um, a man uh, who, who has engaged in fraudulent business practices, who refuses to release his taxes, who, who's a serial liar. It's just, it's just, I'm gobsmacked. This is hmm. unbelievable. This is a man of, of, of manifest, manifold deficiencies. And three out of five whites just said, run our country. Well, another because thing that's interesting. What you're saying about race connects with us. Yeah, but one other thing what's interesting, if I heard correctly, is something like almost 27%, I guess, of Hispanic voters voted for Trump. And so, I think that's right, and a similar number of Asians. I think right. that's right. So, so to, to me, to I me, feel like Trump was, I feel like what is actually happening, what would be interesting to see if it would actually happen would be if the people who have been so divided for so long and have finally figured out the one thing that maybe they seem to share in common is an actual, that a real dislike, distrust, and anger towards the oligarchy, the wealth class that they realize has been running the show. And this felt like a national protest vote, a enough is enough type of a vote. Even people who were like, I'd rather shoot myself in the foot and take that dis- that that person who I may not like on a lot of levels just because I hate the people in power right now so much. And it's odd to view that as actually almost a unifying force. I don't, I don't see it as a unifying force. And I, to, to me, this idea that that, that 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 a Trump vote is an anti-establishment vote, I think that there's something there, ab- absolutely, especially when we think about who Hillary Clinton is. But I don't think we can completely separate that from race either. No, no. Part no, of, of what's not. happening is we we we've been taught to dislike this cultural elite who supposedly force integration on us and and uh, keep lecturing us on the importance of diversity. So even the sort of anti-establishment um, uh, uh, spirit to to Trump's movement, a lot of that is also imbued with racial resentment. And so this is this is the, the, the point that I'm trying to make. It's not just to highlight the racial resentment, but to emphasize the way in which racial resentment has been translated into support for a billionaire class who are overwhelmingly selfish and right. only going to pursue policies that are good for themselves. Right. That, that's, that's a core realization. Yeah, we have been sitting around scratching our heads and not understanding for quite a while now why some people in specific um, highly white and very poor communities would continually vote for people who would then turn around and devastate them legislation-wise. Although, you know, even living in the state of Washington, I'm pretty upset about some of the legislation decisions that my Democratic elected people have been making. So I think the, the, the corruption and the nastiness of the corporate control of these puppet um, political parties is spreading and becoming so obvious. There's just a lot of anger out there. And it, what... it is spreading. It is spreading. It, both, both political parties have been pulled substantially to the right. Yeah. I, I have no doubt about that. 
Um, I, I, I do want to say, I'll, I'll read this excerpt. Right now. Yes. You know, I do want to say, listen, thinking about Bernie, Bernie Sanders, without a doubt, um, uh, has been the bright spot of 2016, and and for a couple of reasons that I really want to highlight. Mm-hmm. First, the tremendous support for Bernie shows how hungry the country is for a new narrative that puts people before corporations. Yeah, that's incredibly important because we've all come through decades of neoliberalism, decades of the certainty that we have to withdraw from the public sphere, that government is the enemy, that we should trust the marketplace. And so it's just tremendously important that so many people in the public are saying, you know, that's just not right. We can't trust the market. We need government to take care of people instead of corporations. We really have an interest in bringing back government on the side of the 99%. That's one. Here's the other thing that I think is, in, that is incredibly hopeful. Mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders managed to aggregate many small donations into mm-hmm. a significant campaign war chest. And that is a political uh, earthquake. Mm-hmm. There's so many of us who've said, how are we going to get the political system, how are we going to get the parties back onto the side of people when the parties are driven by uh, large corporate donations, do- right. donations from the very wealthy, you know, and a lot of us have responded to that by saying well, we need campaign finance reform, and but knowing that there will be no campaign finance reform legislatively because we're asking that of legislators who are themselves dependent on big dollar contributions. Right. Exactly. So, so Bernie's like break out of that conversation. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly important to 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 suddenly realize, and, and I think this is partly a function of social media, which has a lot of downsides, but it has this upside. Mm-hmm. Through social media, you can reach a lot of people and you can begin pulling together large amounts of money in small donations, the, the sorts of sums that will actually allow progressives to to uh, to disrupt and to take over and to remake the Democratic, and I suspect eventually the Republican Party as well. I sure hope so. I feel this is what makes me sad about how many progressives um, behave in such a hostile, demeaning, and bigoted way towards, um, quote, Republicans. I just can't even imagine talking about a person as a, quote, Republican. There are so many brilliant, wonderful, fabulous people in America, especially in the older ages in a way that grew up when the Republican Party was not quite so twisted, and they don't know what happened to their party. They're sitting around scratching their head and saying, well, what happened to my nice middle-of-the-road basic Republican Party? Maybe it always had problems, but there has just I feel like the Republicans had their party robbed from them first and our party got robbed a little bit later. But it's like, you know, we've all been basically robbed of our representation via political party. I I think that's I I think that's exactly right. And I think that one way you can see it is the way in which the Republican Party is no longer a conservative party, but now it's a reactionary party that mainly serves the very rich. When, When we think Republican and we think conservative, what we think is a, a, a set of values that say, hey, 
values themselves are important to society. We should be careful to change them slowly. We should look for those values in our families, in our communities, in our churches, and in our government. Um, uh, that's conservatism. And, and now I, I'm not conservative. I think, okay, let's, let's change, let's move forward. Okay, but that's conservatism, and I have tremendous respect for it. Mm-hmm. Reactionary politics is politics that says, we don't like how society is going. We don't like these new members. We don't like these claims of equality. We want to trash the major institutions of society. We want to upend the, 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 um, uh, everything we see around us, burn it all down. We'd rather stop government from functioning. We'd rather seal our borders. We'd rather throw people out. That's reactionary, and that's more often rooted in, 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 in the sort of the, the ugliest impulses uh, rather than the most beautiful impulses in, in humankind. There's also that, that book, um, you know the book Shock Doctrine? Yes. Yeah, okay, so I always think of that because, um, well, well, that was around a slightly different subject area. Um, to me, I feel like um, Americans are being increasingly intentionally shocked in order, you know, one way or another, because once we get shocked and, and we get horrified or whatever, we become these emotional little blobs of jello that will pretty much do whatever we're told will save us, you know. And so I feel like there's a lot of shock and awe going on domestically. And, and I think you that's know. exactly right. So, so what you have is big money interests. And, and I really, and I, you know, I think about the corporations, I think about the Koch brothers. And and they are wondering how best to uh, keep as much money as they have, to free themselves from regulation, to write regulations that favor them. And they know that they cannot come to the American public and and say to the American public, hand over control of government or the marketplace to us because we're rich and we want to be richer. Right, right. So instead, they come to the American public backing politicians who say panic, revolt, hate, Mm -hmm. fear, Mm -hmm. but all of those politicians ultimately have been pursuing policies that have been very good for the petrochemical industry, for the bankers, for Wall Street. That's why at the same time that the Republican Party has been engaged in this reactionary politics and the Democrats have been pulled right, the real change in American society over the last 40 years has been a shift to levels of wealth inequality we hadn't seen since before the Great Depression. Oh, yeah, right, right, which is why we had our FDR moment. We missed it. Let's hope we have another moment in 2020. And, and the way our FDR moment, which was four decades long, the way that was broken was through a racial narrative that said, fear people of color, resent government, trust the marketplace. Yeah, it's interesting. I I think also you get to a point where, you know, Hume, one of the interesting, I was just at, um, right after the election, I'm like, okay, tomorrow I'm going to my, you know, 34th Dems meeting, which I oftentimes go to, not always at all. Um, but I was like, I'm definitely going tonight. I thought there'd be a lot of people there and a lot of energy. And it was really more completely dead. <laughs> I guess a lot of people were just devastated at home still with their boxes of tissues. And um, But it was interesting in a conversation with a really brilliant young man, I started talking about sociology and the importance of understanding what motivates human behavior. And I said, because, you know, politics is the result of human behavior. And, and, and he said, no, it's not. It has nothing to do with it at all. 
And I thought, oh, okay. So, you know, if we can't step back, what worries me, and I'm not even watching Talking Heads, I don't really like to do that, but what worries me is that there will be all this analysis, micro-analysis, more splintering of, of America into lots more pieces, and which of these groups could we have manipulated in this way so they would have voted the way we wanted them to, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, you got to step back a little too, though, because the way I look at it is, you know, FDR came in and succeeded because of the devastation of the moment and lots of other stuff. Things got so good for so long. Once people get to a point of real comfort, then someone comes along and says, oh, well, you know, let's make this change. And it's the memory's gone. 40 years is, a gen, is almost two generations. A lot of the memory's gone. A lot of the fear is gone. And now you're like, sure, why not? That sounds good. So that's the other question is how do we keep people remembering what's going on because that impacts how they behave. So I, I think I think that's right. So to to me that's really um there there's what's going on and then there's the stories we tell about what's going on. <laughs> and I think that's yeah. where conserv that's where progressives have really fallen down. Um, and uh, though though again that's what's so energizing about uh, about Bernie Sanders we have not had major political figures telling us a, a recovered story about mm-hmm. what's going on. And I say recovered because th- this is the story that FDR was telling us. This is the story that the progressives in the generations before him were telling us. Mm-hmm. Th- th- this is the story of human society, yeah. always. The, po- the the rich try and, and hoard power and concentrate power and always – the challenge for a human society in becoming more just and more equitable is to push power downward and outward. Right. That's always the story. And so, you know, um, in, in, in how that story plays out in the United States, it's deeply connected with race, it's deeply right. connected with gender, it's deeply connected with immigration. But at root, what we're all trying to do, all of us of goodwill, is we're trying to create a society that takes power and pushes it downward and outward. Mm-hmm. So how about we go ahead, since we are sadly running out of time, how about we end actually on your reading of the introduction of this lovely book? People, um, just so you know, let's see here, I always talk about this. So well-referenced book, there's a many pages, um, notes to pages in the back, there's a whole bunch of them. So people who want to have further reading, there will be options for that. And I love that. Thank you for all the references. It's about 229 or 30 pages long, and it's called Dog Whistle Politics by Ian Haney Lopez. And you can go to literally ianhaneylopez.com, correct, if people want to learn more about you. So Ian is I-A-N. Haney is H-A-N-E-Y and Lopez, L-O-P-E-Z dot com. Of course, you can go to voiceofashon.org, check it out on the website there, and you're going to find um, a bio and you'll see a picture of Ian on the, on the web page there. So uh, go ahead and read that piece from the intro, and then I'm going to have to say goodbye. All right. So Dog Whistle Politics, meaning here the book, Dog Whistle Politics aims to lay bare how race has become, and at least in the medium term will remain, central to American electoral politics and the fate of the middle class. Even when willing to concede that race matters when talking about the lives of poor minorities, 
members of the middle class nevertheless typically harbor an unfounded certainty that race holds little relevance to them or their future. They could not be more wrong, for race constitutes the dark magic by which middle class voters have been convinced to turn government over to the wildly affluent, notwithstanding the harm this does to themselves. This book's primary goal is to grab the attention of middle class readers, white and non-white alike, to awaken them to the importance of race to their fate. We will not pull government back onto the side of the broad middle until we confront the power of racial politics. That's brilliant. That's awesome. Yay! Uh, thank you so much for caring about this issue, for taking the time to write this book and helping to illuminate our view of the world so we can better make our way forward. And thank you so much for taking the time to engage with the book and with me. I really appreciate it, and I've enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, um, that's our show, folks. My name is March Twisdale, and you've been listening to my interview with Ian Haney Lopez here on Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, where my guest authors share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time. And now I'll leave you with the inspirational and timely song, We Are the Many, created by musical activist Makana.